0: Oh, and I can't deny it Many times I thought of cutting out But my heart just won't buy it But if there's nothing shaking, come here this July I'm gonna roll myself up in a big ball and die So you, uh, you probably recognize that as Frank Sinatra, that was one of his classic songs, if you know of Frank, and uh, it gets dark really quick at the end, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's going on, that's life, and I love his lines, each time I find myself lying flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get back in the race. But if nothing's shaken, come here this July, I'm going to roll myself up in a big ball and die. So so go in peace. So what, you know, Frank, I I listen a little bit to him. And the thing that I like is the perspective, because he kind of came from the ultimate worldly perspective. Right. You probably remember his probably moniker song, I Did It My Way, right? I mean, it, kind of the ultimate in-your-face, hey, I'm gonna make life what I want it to be, and I'm gonna go for it. And so as believers, as followers of Christ, we we go, well, what do we do with this world? How, how does this world work? And a lot of us... Uh, sit there in frustration, going, this, this isn't working. And so what, when do we try harder, and when do we give up? And by give up, I don't mean kill yourself. That's what it sounds like here. But even in an interview, Frank said, no, nah, I don't want to kill myself. I just want to let go of stuff that's not working and move on. That was kind of his thinking. And there's been a lot of research around effort and results, and it turns out, if you spend an extra hour studying, odds are you're gonna get a better grade. If you actually diet and exercise, you'll probably experience a healthier body. So there is this kind of correlation that we experience between effort, trying harder, and better results. And so the world, business, all are trying to figure out Give me the system I can use to get better results. And people pay a lot of money to try to figure out those systems. But we as Christians, we kind of got a trump card, right? Because we got the whole God thing. So we can work our systems and then kind of back up and go, and God, make it work. But, to do that, we, we gotta learn the right prayers, right? We, we gotta figure out, okay, how much fasting? Is enough fasting? How, how, how do I get this God thing to work? How much, how much effort do I put into this God thing so these other efforts I get kinda get the magic God dust on them and they prosper? And the problem is we, we think we get it right and then The cancer doesn't go away. We we think we got it wired and our job is gone. We lose all our finances and we don't know where we're gonna live. And we say, God, okay, what's the prayer now? What's What's the code? What's the magic formula that I use to make this work? Do I just try something harder? Well, when uh, we went to the Philippines, first time I got there, I got picked up by Haziel, who did this factory. And th- this is kind of amazing, what they've done. And over there, it's different than here, because here we actually have a lot of laws in place, right, that divide church and business and politics and personal life. And it- it's hard. You can't just mix finances and mix uh, 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 work and that sort of thing and all those pots, you have to keep them separate. Well over there, they don't have any of those restrictions. So here he builds this factory and we, we help make that possible. And he hires people who are pastor's kids up in the mountains. He puts college kids up in a little loft, workers gives them a free place to live. It's kind of an amazing mix of what he's doing in the community, taking care of each other through a business. Well, when he picked me up the first time, there was a, a gal also in the van and her name was Marie Antoinette. And uh, her parents named her after that, that queen and uh, most people there just call her Antoinette. And Antoinette was the only person in the van who seemed kind of distant and a little sad. And they told me a little bit about Marie. And I've, I've come since this last time. In fact, we have a whole video interview of her that Michael's putting together. When she was young, she grew up in a very poor family. And she decided at a very young age, I, I don't want to be poor. So, even as a young teenager, she opened a little fruit stand, started selling fruit. By the time she was in her early 20s, she had her own store selling used shoes and used clothes, hired employees, tithing to the church, doing everything right. Right? I mean, and, it, and if you talk to her at that time, She might even say, oh, yeah, I'm going to church, and God is just blessing my store. He's just providing. God is doing so many good things, and I'm able to tithe to the church and hire people and give them income. I can support my family, and God's blessing it all, and God's making it all possible. And when I met her on this day, 12 hours earlier, she was standing out in front of her store watching it burn to the ground no insurance everything gone and here she was sitting in the van kind of coming along because she just didn't want to sit by herself in despair even with people around her feeling very alone and wondering where exactly is God well, what do we do with that? Did she get the formula wrong? Did she not pray the right prayer at the right time? Was there some hidden sin she just didn't figure out? Have, have you noticed something about the world? It's kind of messed up. I, it, I don't know if you've noticed that. You set up, Peter's noticed that, okay? We can have an altar call over the messed up world. The, you set out to do things, and it doesn't work. And sometimes, you're going along doing everything right, and catastrophe just happens. The diagnosis comes, the fire comes, the abuse comes, and you didn't do anything wrong. And sometimes you're going along and pride gets the best of you and you make decisions that are really bad. And you look at a destroyed life and go, yeah, by my own hands I did this. Where's God? What does he do with that? What does he do with you? Let's look at Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. We're going to come back to Marie and her situation at the end, hopefully, if you remind me. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll look at that, but let's look at Palm Sunday. <clears throat> this is what Palm Sunday is, and where where does it get, how do we get this name Palm Sunday? I mean, it obviously it comes from Jesus riding into Jerusalem and people putting the palms down, but where did all the palms come from? And I remember even in seminary going, well, where did all these people, Jesus shows up and they all ran out and grabbed a bunch of, Palms off palm trees, the people that own the palm trees must have been ticked off so this this whole Palm Sunday actually has some pretty rich history to it. so the palms this is a time it was the tabernacle uh, feet or uh, feast of booze, and the uh, people would go out and gather different plants to celebrate the eighth day, the harvest piece of it, and they would bring them and weave them together. Some would just be palm leaves, some would be woven wheat or olive branches, all kinds of things, and they'd weave them into sometimes very elaborate kind of designs, and they'd walk through Jerusalem all together, and they'd wave them, reciting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was basically, God's going to show up, and redeem us from our oppressors. He's gonna reestablish his kingdom and gonna rule through us, and he's gonna make us successful. In fact, it even says that. He was just gonna bring success. He's gonna make us successful. And it would end with this. They would say this at the end. They'd say, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would, they would kind of chant out to the, to the void, to the heavens, because that's a statement that says the he is the Messiah. Blessed is he, the Messiah, who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and every time they made this celebration, they would say that, calling out to the Father, saying, please send the Messiah. We're ready for him. He's, he's going to come. He's going to be ready. We're ready. Please send him. And then they'd get to the temple, and they'd do some, some uh, sacrifices in the temple, and it would end this, this process. Well, as they walked through, especially for the last number of years, when they walked through, what they had in their mind was Rome. Rome was the oppressor of the Jews. And Rome was an interesting group. Rome would go in and invade a, a country, and they would say, look, you guys can keep doing everything you were doing. In fact, many of you can become Roman citizens, and if your kids are born, they're automatic Roman citizens. But here's all we require of you. Two things. Pay taxes, and worship Caesar as God. You do those two things, we're all good. And you can live life just like you were living it, you're just now part of the Roman Empire. And most countries acquiesced to that. Israel would not. Half of them wouldn't pay taxes because they were saying, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna fund our oppressors. So Rome was always at odds collecting taxes and all of them refused to worship Caesar as God. So for the Romans, the Jews were always a thorn in their flesh, a problem they had to deal with. And for the Jews, Rome was the bad guys. These these were the folks the Messiah was gonna come and deliver us from. And so they'd walk down these streets almost kind of in a defiant march, reciting Psalm 118, kind of in the Romans' face, going, yeah, our Messiah is going to come and you're going to get yours. Have you ever wondered that when God's going to show up and people are going to get theirs? He's going to make it right? One last thing to note here before we get into the Scripture part of it. Donkey versus horse. When when a king rides in, either Before war, or after the victory of war, he'd ride on a horse. This was true through Israel, Saul, David, uh, uh, Solomon. This was also true for other kingdoms, Egypt, Rome, Greece. The horse represented victory, power, uh, conquering. A donkey represented peace. It it basically represented kind of passivity and Zechariah 9 9 as if you read 9 it's this whole passage Zechariah 9 about how God's gonna come and conquer and establish peace and then it says and the Messiah who's going to make this happen is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and Even the contemporaries who read that, I'm wondering even if Zachariah, when he wrote it, went, God, could you say that again? Because I thought I I heard you say donkey and I'm thinking it should be horse. But it was a donkey. It was this passive, almost nothing anybody else can do about it. I have this under control. I'm the one doing it, not you, image. A donkey. So, they knew the Messiah was going to come in to Jerusalem on a donkey. As confusing as that was. Let's take a look at the, uh, the verses here. Luke 19, 29-35. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, cloaks also had meaning back then. Everybody had a cloak. And so to take off your cloak and to lay it in front of somebody is basically saying, you're better than me, and it would be what you would do if a king, a ruler would come into town. You would put your cloak out before him. So they kind of made a saddle with their cloaks and put Jesus on it, had him start riding in. Few things are happening right here. Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9. He's about to ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. The disciples are looking at this and they are getting really excited because in their mind they're saying finally Jesus claiming who he is to everybody he's showing them he's the messiah and we're all about to kick Roman butt he's gonna go in and do, I? you know, he does all these miracles, who knows, maybe he'll blind all the Romans, maybe he'll just strike them all dead, we don't know how it's going to work, but we know he's our guy, and he's going to make it happen, and we're like right next to him, so we're going to be like the governors and the generals, and this is, this is so cool, this, this day has finally come, and Jesus is taking on who he really is, and we're right here next to him. glory in the highest. They saw it. They knew what was going on. They were waiting for this moment. Many of them already thought, I think this is the Messiah, and here he is. And so they, instead of calling to the heavens, they look at him, and they actually change one of the statements. Instead of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they proclaim in front of everyone that's our king and the messiah come to rescue us and now they're they're kind of in this position of we've seen the miracles did you see in the verse here why they're all excited they saw all the mighty works he did and they're convinced he's the guy who's going to take care of all our problems he's going to fix all of this all this oppression all this economic ruin all this unhealthiness, he's going to come and make it right, finally, our Messiah. When the Pharisees see this, now the Pharisees, these were the, these were the seminary grads. These were the ones who had the formal training, who knew the language, knew how to parse the verses, who knew how to create, to use the verses, to kind of create the right magic spells to get God to do what God now has to do because I said the right word, said the right prayer, did the right fasting, now, God, you're kind of obligated. They know the whole system. They know how to do the right works to get God to like them. And they're trying to teach the people They're trying to guide them because they feel obligated, well, you want God to like you too, so you need to learn the tricks. You need to learn the right things to say and when to say them and what to do and what not to do. And now they're watching Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And they're thinking, no, he's from Nazareth. We know he's not the Messiah. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Well, they didn't know that little fact, but... They thought he came from Nazareth. They were convinced he wasn't the Messiah. And now this guy, this false teacher, false prophet, is found a donkey riding into town, making himself out to be the Messiah, and causing all of these people to sin. And they're really concerned. He's not doing it right. And he's getting a bunch of other people to do it wrong. So this is what they say to him. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, Jesus knew Scripture really well, and the Pharisees knew Scripture really well. So it wasn't lost on the Pharisees what Jesus just said. Because he was alluding, the rocks crying out was alluding to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Nature calls out and proclaims who God is. And when Jesus said, yeah, if these people were quiet, the rocks would cry out. His answer to them saying, you've got to tell these people to quit calling you Messiah. His answer to them was, yeah, not only am I Messiah, I'm God. So he keeps writing. And then something odd happens. Because this is like the culmination of the greatest moment through his whole ministry, right? Right? Finally, he has devout followers who will die for him, who'll do anything. Give themselves to him, follow, stand up to Rome for him. They'll do anything for him. They're cheering. It's like, it's like the standing ovation on a stage. And so how does he respond when he sees all of this praise and worship coming for the deliverance? He says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. His greatest moment, he breaks down in tears. And I'm sure the disciples were going, we just don't understand this Jesus guy. What does he even have to cry about? It's all this work, all this effort we put into is now culminated to this moment. And he's crying and saying people are blind. And I love this verse because Jesus acknowledges, yeah, you're blind and there's really nothing you can do about it because God has chosen not to open your eyes. When he wept, what was he weeping over? I I think he was weeping over a number of things. I think he was weeping over the Pharisees who really thought they figured out the system to get God to like you. And, And the magic potions and the right words to get it to work. And I think he was crying over everyone else who was going, yeah, this God kind of shows up to get my life in order, to bless what what I'm doing, to kind of keep me healthy and prosperous and things working. So the Pharisees thought they solved the spiritual problem through works, and the people thought they solved kind of the physical problems through going to the right place, saying the right prayers. And Jesus wept saying, none of you even know why I'm here. You don't even know what I'm about to do. Why are we here? I mean, why this life? Why this world? Because this world is, is full of all kinds of pain and suffering and junk. Some that comes to us through no fault of our own. Some that we create and bring on ourselves. And in all of that, many times, we cry out, God, where are you? I have some good news for you. I thank God wants to bring everybody to the point where they say, God, where are you? I give up. And if you haven't been brought to that point, don't worry, God will get you there. And you'll say, well, why? Why do I have to be at that? Look, if, if Jesus died on the cross, paid for my sins, why, why this life? Why all this agony and confusion and blindness and despair and loneliness? Would it surprise you to learn that what God is trying to do with you is a little different than what you're trying to do with you? Would, would that be kind of news? On one hand, you're saying no, but on the other hand, the way we live our life, certainly the way I live my life, that still is news to me. I, I still have a hard time taking what I want away from God wants. Now, now, now and I don't, I, I don't want to confuse, thing, confuse things here. Uh, I, I, uh, I grew up in a Methodist church. I got saved in a charismatic church. I went to a Baptist seminary and I was a youth director at a Presbyterian church. So this kind of church experience has been a blessing and a curse, right? But in the charismatic movement, I remember there was a big thing of, you gotta pray and ask God, and, and he'll tell you what to do. And he'll tell you, you know, God, should I shop at Safeway or King Supers, right? And And I've really come to believe, I think God says, yeah, King Super's is closer. I, yeah, no. Or Safeway, you got coupons. You know what? <laughs> I gave you desires. I gave you passions. It's okay. Go. go you you want to work over there? Go. Go apply for a job there. You, you want to quit that job and go somewhere else? Uh, uh, okay. I think we assign so much to God, and when things get frustrating, we're blaming him for things that. And yet, he's so intimately involved in our lives that Job tells us every breath you're taking as you're sitting here, you're not taking, God is giving. And one day, he just won't give you your next breath, and you'll exhale, and it'll be done. That every hair on your head is numbered that he is so intimately involved with every aspect of your life that he is aware of every thought, desire, and passion. So which is it? God, what God is after and doing in us is different than what we're trying to do with us. What we're trying to do with us is make a little more money, get a little better house, Maybe get a car that works a little better, find a job we enjoy doing a little more. And all those things, I think, those are fine. There's nothing wrong with pursuing bettering yourself and, and that sort of thing. But what God's after is eternity. And God is trying to remake you into his image. He's taking you and making you into his eternal temple, his, eternal, his bride. We are the temple of Christ. And he's at work making that happen. And there are three things he's trying to build in you. In fact, these are the three things that scripture tells us are the only three things that leave this world and go to the next. And here, they're very ethereal. We kinda debate on them and wonder, well, what are they? How does it work? What do they mean? And in the next world, they're the concrete. And it's 1 Corinthians 13 everything's going to pass away except these three things. Do you, those of you who grew up in a church, you know what they are? Faith, hope, and love. Those are the things of eternity. And the greatest of these, the very essence of God, is love. So you know what he's concerned about doing in you? Now, granted, he's interested in the job you work and the, the struggles you have. Very inter- His total commitment is to build in you faith, hope, and love. That's his desire, and that's where he's spinning his energy, and that's how he's orchestrating things in your life. And here's, here's the issue with that, and here's why that happens in this world. To build faith, you have to be blinded. You have to walk through times where you can't see what's happening. To have hope, you have to walk through despair. And to really learn how to love and be loved, you have to experience loneliness. And so when these things happen, we cry out to God, and he says, It's okay. I'm at work. I'm here. I see you. So there's good news and bad news. Bad news is, in a sense, all bets are off there is no magic spell that will heal every sickness there's no right church attendance or bible verse to guarantee keeping a job god is at work in you to create faith hope and love and you know as i as i look around we're all different have you noticed that have you ever met you anywhere else (laughs) You won't because you are the only you. There is not another you. Never has been, never will been. You are it. And here's really good news. God desires a relationship with you that he cannot have with anybody else. So when you think he doesn't care, he doesn't see, he doesn't want, he doesn't know, you're it, and he's after you, and he's working in you. Even though you don't know it and don't see it, he is working in you to build faith hope and love Jesus came in and uh, in verse 43 it says it's an interesting thing everybody was waiting for him to take over Rome to come be the guy to deliver them from all this worldly junk and they associated that with their oppressors, Rome. And this is what Jesus said in the midst of his tears. He said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up like a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's talking about Rome, this happened in 70 AD. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation earlier he said you've been blinded to this and he's saying and the result of that blindness is this devastation that's coming upon you basically he said look not only am I not delivering you from Rome Rome's gonna crush you and there are times in our lives where we go God deliver me from this surely you're gonna show up and deliver me from this and that very thing crushes you and you think God has no control. God doesn't care. God. But I'm telling you, those are the moments when he is the most at work in your life. Those are the times when the deepest things of eternity are being built. And this is what he calls us to do. Trust him. Believe that he is good. Believe that he sees you. And how do we know that he is good? He showed us he is good. Jesus, then here at the end of this part, verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. We're his temple. And here's the good news. He's going to cleanse us all. And we don't have to do anything. He's committed to do that. What's the greatest commandment? Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second's like it, which is? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting when Jesus was asked, these two, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't stop. He went on to say the second. And I believe it's because the second is how you do the first. The way you love God is by loving your neighbor. But he used a very interesting verb tense when he did that. It was predictive future so in other words this is what he's saying don't worry you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and you shall love your neighbors yourself I'll see to it and even if you orchestrate everything go to church every day learn all the Bible verses never do anything wrong I'm still gonna get in your temple and clean out the pride and the fallen man and the selfishness that you can't take care of I'll take care of it and even if you totally screw up and make bad decisions and ruin all parts of your life don't worry I'm gonna come in I'll cleanse the temple and I will build in you faith hope and love so does it matter what we do well yes and no it matters effort matters it makes a difference But if you think your effort creates a a deeper obligation from God or a deeper love for you from him, it doesn't. In fact, to the extent you believe that, he's gonna get in your temple and clean that out. But if you lean and go, God, thank you for this life. Guide me with wisdom and I trust and believe you are going to prepare me for eternity with you, and I yield myself to you, and trust that you're going to do that in grace and love and patience with me. That's a really good place to rest. And it's there that you're going to find peace and joy and contentment. Because God loves you no matter what you do, think, say. You cannot. Change that. It's impossible to change it. His very essence is love. You are his child. You cannot change that. What do we do? I don't know. Shop at King Supers. I, I think we get so bent out, going, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want? Me to do? And I think He's going, just live. Love me, love other people. Enjoy what I've given you. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Live for me and allow me to use you, your hands, your words, your thoughts, to love the people around you. In Jesus' name, amen. Union. Oh, <laughs> this is even better, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, well, benediction side, you'll get Antoinette, when uh, Jesus went to the Last Supper, or to, to this Passover, it was a week after he entered into Jerusalem, and this was just Passover that they, have done many, they had done many times and already had done with Jesus a few times. And, uh, but this time he did it different. Because for over a thousand years, they were told a couple things. They just knew as good Jews. You don't eat the flesh of any human. Because by doing so, you're, you're trying to consume their essence and their energy and, and becoming them. So, so you don't do that. And secondly, you don't drink the blood of any animal, because life's in the blood. And life only comes from God. So they were eating bread and drinking wine for that thousand years, for all they knew. But Jesus, on this night, said, let me tell you what you've really been doing. And as he broke the bread, he said, this bread actually my body. Take this, consume it, take me into you and let me become part of you and live through you. And in the same way he took the cup. This is wine? Yeah. In the same way, same way he took the cup and he said this, this is my blood. Drink it. It's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let my life come into you. There there was a time that if I messed up and forgot communion like that, I kind of beat myself up a little bit and think that God was a little displeased. And now I really, I, I, I've been walking long enough with Jesus to really think, you know, I think the Father in Jesus looks at me, Andrew, that goofball, he forgot a sack. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think he laughs because he knows me and he loves me and he knows you and he loves you. And you can't change that well Antoinette uh, we we interviewed her uh, this last time and she said she spent two weeks in blindness despair and feeling alone where God was building in her faith hope and love and at the end of that she said I'm going to try again and she got up and with the help of the church there how's the, young, the church Helped her get a new store and now she has a bigger store hiring more employees people live there at the store She puts them up and gives more in the church than she ever has That's how God chose to work with her We're all unique and different the road God's gonna take you on To build faith hope and love is very different than the one he will take Peter or me or any of us So here's the good news stop comparing yourself to each other it doesn't matter God's doing something over there don't worry about it and you don't even have to worry about you because he's in love with you and he's at work at you and he sees every moment every second and he's there working at it building in you faith hope and love so at the end here if you'd like prayer please come forward and People are here to pray with you. And next week is So invite people to come and hear how good God really is. And let this be the benediction. In the world, you're going to have a lot of tribulation. It's unavoidable. It's by design. But be of good cheer, for he has overcome the world. Go in his peace. Amen.